Well, I encourage you to turn with me in your Bibles to, to 1 Peter chapter 4. We're going to read the first six verses of 1 Peter chapter 4. Now, just to remind you where we've come as we've gone through 1 Peter, in the most recent sections we've heard Peter encourage God's people to live a distinctly Christian life in all of the relationships in which they find themselves, whether they're spousal relationships or their relationships with those who are over them or regardless of of what the relationship is, we should seek to live a life that is distinctly honoring to God by honoring those around us. And if we do that, he said, we'll stand out. We'll have opportunity to tell others about the hope that is within us, but we will also probably not always be the favorite of the people of the world. That sometimes will suffer. And we should seek to live in a way that, that shows that we don't deserve any suffering we receive, that we haven't earned it, we haven't mistreated others, we haven't acted badly. But he points out that Christ suffered for us, and we should seek to imitate His willingness to suffer according to the will of God, according to what God has ordained. Well, going on from that, The Apostle writes, Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind. For he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. For we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles, when we walked in lewdness, lusts, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In regard to these, they think it strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation, speaking evil of you. They will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this reason, the gospel was preached also to those who are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the Spirit. Amen. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Beloved congregation chosen by God in Christ, have you ever asked why you're here? What is your purpose? Why do you endure the day-to-day struggle that is life? What, What is the purpose of all the work, all the conflict, all the pain that life holds? To what end do we endure all of that? What is the ultimate benefit to your endurance? Truth be told, sometimes it feels difficult to honestly answer those questions. When you experience the opposition of those around you, when you experience the struggle even to subdue your own sins, you wonder, what difference does all this effort make? What's the difference? And and why should I bother? There are folks who say we shouldn't bother. There are folks who, especially in the light of the world's hatred for the God whom we serve, there are folks who say, you know what, just trust Christ in your heart, but just try to blend in, try to fit in, fly under the radar. There are folks who quietly evangelize Muslims, for instance, but they urge them, you know, just just make Christ Lord of your heart. Trust Him in your heart, but, but... For the sake of your safety, live like an observant Muslim, knowing that that you're not really one in your heart. 
Surely that would be an easier approach, right? We could be assured of our salvation without the discomfort of feeling that we're set apart from the people around us, that we're at odds with those all around us. Wouldn't it be far easier to live that way? It might. But you see, Christ did not come to, send, to save the souls of His people from hell while they continue to live like those who are going to hell. He didn't come simply to deliver us from the consequence of our sins while we continue in the sin and rebellion of this world. Jesus loves us too much to allow us to continue living in that way. And He loves His Father too much to save a bunch of people who are going to continue dishonoring Him. So the Lord calls us to pursue a new purpose, a new lifestyle that honors God in all things. And our text this morning shows us something of what that new purpose involves and how we are to endeavor to pursue it. God's people pursue a new purpose. That's our theme. And from the very start, God's servant shows us that pursuing that new purpose involves, above all else, embracing the God-centered purpose of Christ. And so that's our first theme, or our first, first point that we find in verses 1 and 2. Embracing the God-centered purpose of Christ. But notice how that section begins with the word, therefore. Don't ever overlook that word, children. When you're reading in the Bible and you see that word, therefore, stop a minute. Reread what you just saw before that word. Because the text you're about to read is going to play off of that. It's going to show you what the consequence or the result of what you just read will be. What came before this text, as we saw last week, was a passage that taught us how Jesus suffered. I'm sorry, not last week, the week before. It was a passage that taught us how Jesus suffered the penalty for our sin. And how Jesus preached to those who were dying in their sin. And how Jesus gives us confidence by means of the sacrament of entrance into the church. By means of baptism, he gives us confidence of our union with the one who suffered on our behalf and who triumphed over all of God's enemies. Therefore, because Jesus did all of this for us, because Jesus suffered in these ways for us, our obligation is to arm ourselves with the mind of Christ. Now that, that verb, arm yourselves, that indicates that we're heading for conflict, right? There's a war and we need to be prepared for that war so that we don't fall in the battle. It's like a soldier preparing to go into, into a conflict. He doesn't just, you know, enjoy a few good meals, take some R&R. No, he, he gathers together his weapons. He trains with them so that he'll be able to use them well. So that when he gets into battle, he doesn't have to think about it. He just knows what to do. It's already uh, ingrained into his muscle memory. Well, that's what we're to do. We're to arm ourselves for the conflict ahead. And the weapon with which we arm ourselves, it's not a sword, it's not a gun, it's not some other weapon of the flesh. It's the mind of Christ. The same thinking that drove Jesus to do what he did. The same love that drove him to die for those who hated him. The same willingness to serve God no matter what the cost. That is what we are to take up and know well because that is our primary weapon. We'll come back to that in a minute. But notice that Peter then says a, a kind of an odd thing. For he who has suffered in the flesh 
has ceased from sin. It's kind of curious in the context, isn't it? Arm yourselves also with the same mind, for he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Now we know Jesus suffered in the flesh for our sake. He suffered for the sins that we committed, paying the penalty for our sin. And when he did so, he went all the way. He made a complete end of sin. But this isn't talking just about Jesus. This is talking about us when we endure suffering. Us, whom Peter has just urged to take up the mind of Christ, whom Jesus urged to follow him in in bearing our cross. To us, he says, having suffered in the flesh, you have ceased from sin. What in the world does that mean? Well, there are at least two ways that we could take that, and I think that's on purpose. I believe that that he wants us to understand this in two ways that are compatible. The first way we need to understand this is, is to recognize that we suffered for sin in Christ. It is as we read in Colossians 2 and 3 this morning for our assurance of pardon. When we have faith in Christ, we're joined to him. We're united to him. And so, very truly, we died on the cross with Jesus. And therefore, we now live by the power of Jesus' resurrection. And that means that sin no longer has power over us. We have ceased from sin in that sin no longer holds us captive. We are no longer its slaves. We now have a choice that before Christ we didn't have. Before we came to Christ, before we trusted in Him, we didn't have a choice about whether we would sin. It was just a matter of which sins we would commit. But now, because we're joined to Christ, we have the power to say no to sin. We have the power to turn our backs on sin. We have the power to begin living a new kind of life. That, first of all, we who have suffered in Christ have ceased to be enslaved to sin. But moreover, we now are called to follow Jesus in suffering. We're called to join Him in enduring the scorn of the world. And we're called to join Him in living for God. And if we do that, if we join Christ, if we follow after Him in living for God, taking up the mind of Christ who was willing to do whatever God ordained, then folks, we will increasingly cease from sin. Peter's not saying we will immediately be made perfect. But he's saying we will no longer live for sin. Sin will no longer be our identity. There was a time before we came to Christ. For some of you, you don't even remember that time. You were so young. For others, you remember that time well. But there was a time when we were identified by our sin. Everything we did, everything we desired, revolved around those passions of the flesh, those passions of the world. But because we are in Christ, now we have ceased from identifying ourselves by our sin. And now we strive to live for God. It's a lifelong struggle, a lifelong process. But it's a process that we will begin, that we will engage. Because we are joined to Christ. Because we've gained the mind of Christ. And that will mean suffering. It will mean suffering. Suffering, both external suffering and internal suffering. 
Because it's hard to turn our backs on those sins. It's hard to reject what was our identity. And it's certainly hard to reject what the world loves. Knowing that we'll pay the price. We'll talk about that in a minute. But, but understand, that's the path of suffering. It's the path of bearing the cross of Christ. But folks, this is our purpose. He who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. This is a fundamental part of the Christian life, but also a radical departure from who we were. The Lord calls us to decide. Who will you be? Where will you fit? What will identify you? Will you be identified? There's two options here. Will you be identified? Will you follow after the lusts of men? That's what comes natural to us. It's our addiction to follow after what feels good. What feels good right now, right this instant, with no thought to the future, no thought to the consequences. That is the path of least resistance for sinful men and women. And it will invariably lead us to rebellion against God. It will lead us to hatred of the Lord. It will lead us to hateful acts toward men. And it will lead to condemnation in the sight of God. Our calling to suffer, our calling to adopt the mind of Christ, is a calling to reject those addictive cravings of sin and to choose instead the will of God. God's will is always, always, always good. But it doesn't always feel that way. When people are mocking you and slandering you because you've chosen to follow after the Lord, it doesn't feel good. When you're delaying your gratification, you're not doing that thing that you so want to do, and you're, you're seeking out accountability and trying to distract yourself so that you won't do that which you know God hates. It doesn't feel good to follow God's will. But if God commands it, then God will prepare us for it. God will equip us to do it. And He will ultimately give us joy in following His paths. Again, understand, Peter's not saying that we as Christians live a life of perfection in this world. We can't yet. God allows us to struggle with our sin. But He calls us to struggle with our sin. He calls us to a life that aims at that which is categorically different, desiring what the unbeliever would never desire, striving to, to put off the sins in which the unbeliever delights. And as we do that day by day, moment by moment, our lives will change and people will notice. Folks, this is radical. Christians are called to a life of radical transformation because God loves us too much to leave us unchanged. And how can you know what that should look like? How can you know what He wants you to put off, what He wants you to take up, what that should look like in your life? Again, we have to adopt the mind of Christ. We have to arm ourselves. Notice how active that is. It's not passive. Just like the soldier, when he arms himself with the weapons of warfare, it's not a passive thing. He doesn't just stand there and get armed. No. He takes up his weapon, and he cleans it, and he learns it, and he disassembles it, and he reassembles it, and he takes it out on the range, and he learns how to use it, and he causes jams, and he learns how to clear those jams. 
so that he knows that weapon intimately and he's able to use it effectively on the battlefield. And so must we with the mind of Christ. And that is radically countercultural in our age. We live in a very anti-intellectual age. We live in an age when people no longer talk about this is what I believe, this is what I think. They say instead, this is what I feel. Well, I just feel like God wants me to. Well, I just feel like the right thing. You realize when we adopt that language, we're adopting the language of the world. The world which knows nothing of objective truth, which refuses to know objective truth because objective truth condemns us in our sin. But if we're to adopt the mind of Christ, we have to stop feeling what is true and look at the objective truth of God's Word. That's where we learn the mind of Christ because that's where we encounter Christ in His truth and that truth never changes. Jesus prayed to His Father in John 17 concerning His people. He said, Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. That means if you would have the mind of Christ, if you would know God's will for you, for your life, then you must take up God's word and study it. Read that word daily. Pray continually that God would give you insight into what that word means and how we should apply it. Study it with God's people together in Bible studies and and through the sermons. Cherish the truth that God imparts through that word. For folks, there is no other way to gain the mind of Christ than by studying His word. However, through that word, Through that word, we learn how God would have us live. Through that word, we learn why God is trustworthy. Through that word, we become eager to live for Christ, even if it means suffering. Folks, this is what life is about for a Christian. This is our purpose as Christians. This is why we do what we do and embrace the life that we lead. We embrace the God-centered purpose of Christ, which involves learning his, his Word, learning what the mind of Christ is, and through that, learning to pursue the will of God in all that we do, in all that we say, in all that we are. However, even as we take up the mind of Christ, even as we arm ourselves with the mind of Christ and begin choosing the will of God over the lusts of the flesh, We have to also simultaneously be putting off what used to identify us. And so the second point we see here is our calling to reject the sin-centered purpose of man. Here's the thing. If we embrace the God-centered purpose of Christ, we're going to stand out. Because that's not what people are like when they're apart from Christ. That's not how we ourselves would naturally choose to live. But verse 3 tells us we're done with the way we used to live. It's important that we hear that. Because what we did and what we desired to do before we came to Christ, it's not only the path of least resistance, it's also the path that the world follows. But now God tells us, that's enough. You've done that for long enough. Now that you've come to Christ, that is no longer what defines you. That is no longer who you are. We hear a contrary message, not just in the world, but often even in the church. People imply that young men are missing out if they don't sow their wild oats, that young ladies need that time of spreading their wings. 
They imply that we need to, to indulge our sins for a time before we resolve to settle down so that we'll know what it's like to live as the world. But God says, no. Today is the day to repent. Right now is the time to say we're done with that, whether you're 5 or 50 or 85. Today is the day. Now is the time to say we have lived enough of our time for the flesh. And now we live for God. To emphasize that, Peter points out the nature of the will of the Gentiles, what it involves. Understand that what he says in verse 3, it's not, a, it's not an exhaustive list of how Gentiles live. It's, it's a categorical list. He's describing the lifestyle, the kinds of actions that they crave. And the kinds of actions that we would crave apart from Christ. Unbelievers, he says, they pursue lewdness and lusts. They're desiring experiences that would satisfy the sensual pleasures of the body. Following after cravings that become idols, that become false gods. Because that's what identifies us. That's what, what we pursue above all else. Now understand that it's not wrong to enjoy pleasures of the flesh. God created them for good when they're used as they ought to be used. The words he uses here... Lust and lewdness, that, that hints at the use of sexuality. And that's a gift that God gave as a good thing when used within the bounds of marriage. When used within its proper context, God uses that gift to deepen the unity that a man and his wife have together. It cements that unity. It draws them closer to one, an, one another than they could ever be with anyone else. But when misused, when shared without outside of the bonds of marriage, through adulterous behavior, or enjoyed alone through pornography and such sins, suddenly that good gift becomes a poison that destroys. Proverbs 6 compares it to hot coals. Used properly, hot coals can cook you a nice warm meal. They can warm up your house. They can bless you immeasurably. But take them out of the stove. Scatter them around heedlessly. And suddenly those coals that were such help, they can burn you, they can hurt you, they can destroy your beautiful house. And yet that's exactly what the unbeliever delights to do with all of God's gifts. Not just sexuality, but all of God's gifts. He seeks to use them in a way that is destructive and that perverts God's intention. So they pursue drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties. Now again, there's nothing wrong with using God's gifts in a way that God intended. Wine, He gave to bless the heart of man, Psalm 104. To bless the stomach of man, according to Paul when he spoke to Timothy. In fact, Jesus' first public miracle was turning water into wine. And not just wine, but really good wine. That's, that's instructive for us. This is a good gift. But used wrongly, used to excess... It removes our inhibitions. It silences our conscience. And it lets us sin more abundantly and easily. So again, we take those, those good gifts of God and we misuse them in a way that allows us to rebel more efficiently against God. It all comprises abominable idolatries. The word for abominable there is literally lawless. The unbeliever desires to put off the law of God. 
and to live as though he is a law unto himself. Isn't that postmodernism? Whatever's Whatever I feel must be true for, you, for me, and whatever you feel must be true for you, even if it's different, even if it's contrary. That's abominable idolatry, lawlessness, that we serve instead of God as an idol. And we think, well, surely I would never be an idolater. I would never bow down to an idol. But it's not just about bowing down to a physical image of a god. It's about serving something rather than God or alongside of God or contrary to God's commands. When we put money or reputation before God, when we put ourselves before our neighbor, before our children, before our parents, when we put the feelings of the flesh, the experience of the moment before serving God, before loving our neighbor, that's an idolatry that is abominable in God's sight. God calls us to something far better. In fact, He calls us to the precise opposite of what comes natural. Instead of lust, He calls us to cultivate a love that is selfless. Instead of drunken stupor, He calls us to cultivate a godly self-control. Instead of lawless idolatry, He calls us to cultivate a love that submits in all things to God. So we must reject the idolatrous depravity that comes natural and pursue instead that which is commendable in the eyes of God. But understand that when we do that, people will notice. And the unbelievers in our lives will not be impressed. Verse 4 says, they, they think it's strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation. They think it's strange. It's incomprehensible to them that anyone would not want to do what they do. They live for the moment. They satisfy their cravings. They affirm whatever feels good. Why wouldn't you want to do the same thing? So they scratch their heads. They look at you like you've turned green. And then if you persist in following after the ways of Christ, they'll turn on you. Peter says they'll speak evil of you because your rejection of idolatry, your renunciation of sin, it offends them. I think, why would it offend them? It's not like I'm telling them they have to. No. But when you reject sin, when you follow after the will of God, it forces them to acknowledge that there is another way to live. That there is another option. That they're not forced to live the way they live. To embrace that empty way of life. It offends them because your behavior attacks their conscience reminds them subtly that they will have to answer for all that they do and that their decisions will have consequences they cannot escape. You will offend them because deep, deep down, they're miserable in their sin. They see the hopelessness, the aimlessness, the emptiness of what they're doing. And misery doesn't want clarity, the clarity that your lifestyle provides. No, no. Misery loves company. Join me in this emptiness so that I won't be alone. And so they'll do anything they can to discredit you in their own eyes and in the eyes of the world. Stand firm anyway. Regardless of their words, regardless of their scorn, continue to reject the sin-centered purpose of men. And know that God will preserve you even when men condemn. And that leads us to our last point. 
that God's people can expect the gracious purpose of our judge. Verse 5 recalls the coming judgment. They will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Now why is it important for God's people to remember that? Well, it's hard to endure the slander and the abuse of unbelievers when we're just trying to do what's right. It can tempt us to turn back from our conviction and to try to blend in again. Or worse, it can lead us to try to get revenge on those who've mistreated us. It can be terribly hard to pursue holiness, to pursue the will of God when the enemies of God are attacking. So Peter reminds us, those who are opposing the people of God will be held accountable. God who judges all men will one day call all men to stand before Him. Ecclesiastes 12 tells us, God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. And no one will escape that judgment. Not those who have lived and have already died and gone to the grave. Not those who are still living when Jesus returns. Every single one will be drawn to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And they will answer for everything they've done and everything they've failed to do. Everything they've said and everything they've desired. Everything they've cultivated and also that which they have ignored. The only hope to be found that day. Children, hear this. We all... Christian or unbeliever, American or foreigner, every single person who ever has lived or ever will live, we all will stand before God's throne in that day. And the only way we will be acquitted, the only way we will be held guiltless before God is if we have trusted in Christ. If we have acknowledged that He died for our sin and that we now live for Him. And if we acknowledge that, our life will have shown it. We won't have been perfect, but we will have been different from those who live for their sin, for the the flesh. But for those who do trust in Christ, those who do strive to live for the Lord, for them this is comfort indeed. Because the people of this world in their idolatry and their sin, they they may slander you with all sorts of unfair claims. They may pass laws forbidding you from saying or doing that which is right. They may ruin your business, attack your family, drag you to court. But at the end of days, we can know they will be held accountable. God's justice will be brought to bear. They will stand before your king who loved you enough to die for you and they will answer for what they have said, for what they have done. That means you don't need to worry about them, you don't need to fear them, and you certainly don't need to seek vengeance against them. What you do need to do is take seriously your calling. Because you too will stand before God. You too will answer to Him. So you must live today in such a way as to approach that day with no regret, with no fear, but rather with eagerness to see the Savior for whom you lived. Live today in a way that always, always, always looks to the Lord. And live also today in a way that seeks to rescue your neighbor by pointing him also to Christ. Because one way or another, everyone will stand before him. That's why he ensured us, as verse 6 tells us, that the gospel 
was preached and must be preached to the dead. That has a double meaning, by the way. In, on one side, it's telling us that those who already had departed from this life, they heard the gospel. They had opportunity to prepare for the judgment. In one sense, everyone sees the gospel right there in the world. Look out the window, there's the gospel. How so, do you say? We're surrounded by snowflakes today. Children, do you ever do the experiment? You go out, you pick up a hand of snow, and you kind of shuffle it off so that almost all of it disappears on your glove. It doesn't work on your hand. It has to be on your glove or on some other object. And if you look very closely, you'll see the snowflakes, and you'll see the beautiful crystalline designs of those snowflakes and how each design is different from each other and each one is a work of art it's a marvel of God's creative design and that's just one little tiny piece of the creation that testifies that this didn't just happen this isn't just an accident this isn't just the product of millions of years of evolution that's a laugh this is all perfectly concretely designed by the Lord to point us to him And the only way you can deny that, the only way you can claim that it's all just a happy accident is by willfully covering your eyes and refusing to see what's all around you. Everyone who has lived has seen that, has has had no excuse in their rebellion against God. But when the gospel came to them, whether through the world or through that which was proclaimed. They were dead. They were dead in their sin. They were separated from God. The gospel's the only thing that could bring them to life. But those who respond to that call, those who turn to Christ as you have, we hope, well, they'll have a life of struggling against sin. They'll endure slander and suffering because of those who hate the Lord. But even as they endure that suffering, even as they endure that slander, they live a life of blessing, a life of reconciliation with God, a life of eternal blessing because they live in Christ. My friends, if you have received the gospel, yes, you will be judged by men in the flesh, but you will live eternally in Christ. And no one can snatch that life away from you. No one can rip you away from the Lord. No one can remove your eternal inheritance. We heard it in Colossians 3. For you died and your life is hidden with Christ. Having been given such an amazing gift, we must embrace the purpose that He has given us. The purpose of preparing ourselves by adopting, by arming ourselves with the mind of Christ as we study His Word and learn how to pursue the will of God rather than the lusts of the flesh. But we must embrace the purpose also of cultivating a life that is different, a life that will force your neighbor to see that there is another way. And then we must embrace the purpose of showing our neighbor what that way is. Show them by the love that you Express toward them. Show them by the forgiveness that you give to them. Show them by explaining to them the hope that is within you. 
that allows you to rise up with joy over the strife and the suffering of this world. This is the purpose for which you were made. That you might live for God, that you might live no longer for the flesh, and that you might show others the grace by which God is willing to deliver them from the judgment. Who are you? What defines you? Why do you endure it all? This is why. God's people pursue the new purpose of living for Him, for Christ. May God make that the passion of every one of us. And may He be glorified. Amen. Let's pray. O Lord, our God, we thank You that You have given us this amazing purpose and that You have revealed it to us. Father, make us to delight in that purpose which is ours, to live for Christ and no longer for the passions of the flesh. And Lord, give us encouragement. Give us victories each day over the sins that would otherwise enslave us. That we might be encouraged, that we might be lifted up, that we might be drawn more and more into into doing what you would have us do. And that others around us, seeing the change you have wrought in us, might long for that which we've been given in Christ. Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.